Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm Mike Boris, and this is Straight Talk. It's not every day that I chat with someone who's been to prison let alone someone who's recognised pretty universally across the world. Today I'm chatting with the Wolf of Wall Street himself, that's right, Jordan Belfort. Yep, that's the dude that Leonardo DiCaprio tried to portray in The Wolf of Wall Street. We're chatting virtually because he's on the other side of the world, but it's pretty clear that this guy, no matter which way you talk to him, is full of energy and does everything to the max. This is the kind of boundless energy that can have someone flying too close to the sun as did happen to Jordan. But you can't stop that energy. It's the same energy that's the fuel to build yourself back up, and that's exactly what he's done. He's changed his image. He's changed his views. He's chasing down new frontiers, and believe it or not, in the area of crypto and NFTs. So there's a few things to get stuck into. It's very broad and quite deep. So let's get into it. It's time for No Bullshit with Jordan Belfort. Jordan Belfort, welcome to Straight Talk, mate. Thank you. What the fuck with all our uh, technical shit we have to put up with? <laughs> I, I know. I'm just like, you know, I do that at my house here. We got all this, you know, advanced, you know, machinery here. And the more advanced it gets, the more, you know, likely something will go wrong at some point in the chain. So, <laughs> totally. Hey, I, I was just looking at something you put up on, your, on one of your Instagrams on 23rd of April this year. And I love it. Rule number one. Uh, Fuck what they think. Uh, I, I'm digging it. Uh, and you got a pretty good responses. And sort of a little bit of today, we have to deal with it, a little bit of the fuck what they think stuff right now. Um, because I, I want to I want to go over and talk about NFTs and cryptocurrency and, uh, you know, DeFi, et cetera, all that sort of stuff, which is where you're you're at. But I just want to deal with the, the shit in the beginning, right, the little bit of shit we have to deal with. And I don't want to deal with what happened, what you did, why you right. did all, all that sort of stuff. I'm not interested. We read about it. We watched the movie, et cetera, and I'm sure you've spoken to death about that. You've done it here in Australia. What I want to ask you is this. How does somebody deal with the stress when the sword of Democles was hanging over your head for a, probably a really long time with investigations and stuff like that. How did you position that 
relative to running your business? Good question. So couple of things. Number one is that, you know, typically, um, unless something comes out of the blue, like where suddenly you're under investigation, like you, like, you know, it's a very quick thing where like one day they come in to investigate you and three days later you're under indictment. That's not really the way it works. Usually there are these sort of, you know, glancing blows that happen along the way. You get a subpoena and then you don't hear about it for a while. And then, um, you know, someone might get a knock on their door. Then you don't hear about that for a while. Right. And then you, you know, try to go back into through customs and they're searching your bags in an irrational way. And you think maybe you're on some sort of watch list. Like there's all these things. And with my case, it was a seven year, eight year journey where from the first time I knew that I was being looked at to when I finally got indicted. Right. So over time, you know, you get tough. You learn to put up these walls and compartmentalize the negativity. Um, and you also, if you're smart, you learn to be very, very careful like that, you know, you're trying to operate, you know, you're being looked at. And I think there's a Warren Buffett in an old saying that, you know, you, any individual, no matter how law abiding they are, if they're driving from one side of the country to the other, somewhere in that journey, they're going to be pulled over for a ticket if a cop wants to pull them over for a ticket and they're going to find something wrong because it's, you know, if they're really looking at you, they're going to find you doing something wrong, right? So you have to be very, very aware that when you're under an investigation like that, you know, that you have to, you'll be 10 times more careful than everybody else. Everyone else, listen, what I ended up getting indicted for was going on worse than other places on Wall Street. And I, I think came out in like 2008 and we watched the whole world almost collapse because of all the shenanigans on Wall Street. So, you know, the stuff I was doing, while it was certainly wrong, it was not an isolated thing that I had, had come up with some idea. I mean, it was just massive fraud all over Wall Street. So I learned when I was going through it to simply compartmentalize it and move forward every single day. And, you know, also a bunch of quaaludes definitely helped a little bit maybe in the other recreational substances. But for the most part, you know, you know, that's not a place that I would recommend people want to live. So while I became really good at compartmentalizing negativity, I like my life a lot better now where I have no negativity. And like, I haven't done a single thing in 20 years I'm not proud about. So it's much easier to live the way I live right now where I can just focus on my biggest struggles or I still have many things to be negative about because that's human nature. You can always dwell on shit, right? And I think as human beings, we do that to ourselves. We find problems, we dwell on them. Fortunately, I've to use that to empower me to take action. Many people use it the opposite way. They dwell on the negatives, their own fears, insecurities, and they use it to paralyze them from taking action. I've used it the opposite way. And that's sort of what I was trying to get to because, you know, fear is the great thief of imagination. Um, it actually does paralyze us. And a lot of entrepreneurs in the world um, have a choice of either um, accept fear and just compartmentalize it, as you said, or park it or others let it overwhelm them. You obviously dealt with the extreme version of fear, the extreme version of, you know, regulatory environments where, you know, whereby you're going to, it's going to really affect your business and in fact could put you in jail. What do you, I mean, you, you mentioned resilience, you know, you mentioned that you became hardened to these things. What do you say to an entrepreneur, a young entrepreneur who is experiencing a form of fear, nowhere near as extreme as what you went through, what do you say to them in terms of how do they deal with that and still get on with their business? Sure. Is it just a matter of – how do you park something? How do you compartmentalize it? Do you put it in a box and pretend it's – put it there overnight and close it? How do you do with that? So I think that, you know, certainly um, 
people do that. I've done that at times. It's probably the most empowering way to deal with fear is to pretend it doesn't exist. Like you're the ostrich sticking your head in the sand. I think the the better way, in just terms of dealing with fear, and, I, and there's another thing I want to talk about that's separate this about fear, but just to simply is to like, you know, kind of look a bit more deeply at the fear and realize what the fear really is all about. And typically there's this really fine line between fear and excitement, you know, and a lot of times when you're fearful about something, it's your own body's nervous system telling you that you better look at something very more closely. You better bring your A game to this because the stakes are high. Uh, the likelihood of failure is significant. And uh, unless you have every bit of your emotional, you know, uh, like, you know, wherewithal attached to this and you're focusing on it, you're probably going to find yourself in a problem. So, I don't think, I think fear is is very, very important because it lets you know that something is not like a layup. You have to focus on it more. But I think the biggest thing that I was getting at before is that I think we, we, people bullshit themselves about what their fear really is about. Meaning, are they fearful of failing or are they truly just not confident enough that they'll actually succeed. In other words, like when they're thinking about, should I take action or should I not take action? Is it a fear of failure that really stops people? I don't think it's that so much. It be a little bit. What really happens, people, when they're about to take action, they'll run the movie in their mind and they'll say, do I really have what it takes to succeed? Can I really see myself, you know, if I put in all the work and I risk the money, the time, the embarrassment of being wrong, if I put my all into it, do I really have what it takes to make it work? And a lot of people at that moment, when they're at that precipice, they say, nah, I don't, I can't see my, I don't believe in myself. Like I'm capable of that greatness that I've seen other people have. So what you do say, why do all the work? Why should I take the risk? Why should I put the hours in? Why should I move into an uncomfortable situation if I'm probably not going to succeed anyway? Now, when I'm faced with those moments, I will tell you, I never think that I'm going to fail because I lack a skill set or a connection or the ability myself to make it work. I'm well aware that I might fail, that it just might not work out, but I don't think it's because I lack the ability to make it work. So if you're an entrepreneur and especially a new one or a young one, and you haven't really been through the trials of entrepreneurship, you know, you might have this deep seated feeling like, yeah, I'm walking and I'm pretending to be an entrepreneur, but I don't really have the self-belief that I'm going to make it work no matter what. So you tend to play it safe. You don't take the bigger risks. You don't step into the uncomfortable situations and then you categorize it or we mistakenly categorize it as fear of failure when it really wasn't that. Where did Jordan Belfort then get that confidence? Was that something your family built into when you're growing up in a, as a kid in New York, or like where does that come from? Like, how do you de- or did you develop that, or did you actually sit down and consciously think this through in a logical sort of way? Well, I mean that 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 idea I thought through in a logical way many, many, many years after I'd already been doing it, when I would, you know, out there in the world giving seminars and speaking to people and trying to train people. And I started, you know, wondering what really is happening. Why is it that so many people don't take action? And then, but, and those are people that talk about taking action and they want to take action and they're in rooms where they're looking to learn. These are good, motivated people. Yet, 
for some reason, there's something, an X factor holding them back from taking the plunge, right? And when I really started to think about it and speak to people and people come up to you all the time and tell me their tales of woe, what I started really seeing here was this pattern. And that is a difference between what some people who are really successful do, and that is they step into uncomfortable situations and they don't doubt their own abilities. They know that they have the ability themselves to make it work. They know what they might not make it work, but it's not, if it doesn't work, it's not because I'm not capable of making something work. It's just the circumstances were wrong. It didn't it look good on paper. It didn't play out in the real world. So that empirically, I worked it out long, long after. As far as living it, I think it started at a very young age by failure. Like I failed in the meat business. I was my first business. I did not do well. I failed. I lost all my money. But before that, I had some successes on the beach, selling ices, like before, like kind of pre-business when he was a hustler as a kid, right? My first real business, I went bankrupt. But then from that, I realized some things. Number one, that I was a great salesperson, that I did a lot of things right. And then when I had my next opportunity on Wall Street and I started my own firm and I did things exactly right, I learned from the lessons of the past, the mistakes of the past, right? Next time I felt more confident and over my life as as I started just, you know, doing things and taking action and having setbacks and overcoming them, it actually became a really high value for me to not succeed at first at something and then power through it and succeed. To me, that's the, the best part of all. When I try something, don't really have success at it first, like writing, or it was very difficult for me. And then I just put the time in, I overcome it. And I just, you know, I 10,000 hour myself to death, so to speak. And I master a skill and then I go and do it. There's no better feeling in the world than that. So I believe in my heart that I possess the qualities to succeed. Now, will I succeed or not? That depends on the situation, but it's not like I am missing some gene that stops me from being successful. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm sort of a little bit similar. Like I, I just don't give a fuck, and uh, I don't care whether I succeed or don't succeed. I'm just going to do it. Right, exactly. So like, you know, uh, well, you know, if you don't succeed, though, it's not like you're an idiot. It's like, okay, well, you didn't succeed. Whatever, next, right? Totally. Well, I, I, it's funny. I, I, I talked to um, a guy called John Kavanaugh a little while ago, and he's Conor McGregor's coach. He was on my podcast, and uh, for, I, was, I was talking to him for, um, um, whilst he's here in Australia, and uh, he said to me, he wrote a book, and it's called Win or Learn. And uh, he takes the view you never lose. You're always learning. There so, you go. I mean, and that's the way it works. I mean, if I don't succeed the way everybody would like to standardise my success by making money or whatever it is, I'm going to learn something. And if you, I think it's an attitudinal thing for me anyway. And uh, I, I, and I just want to flip that right now. Then, in terms of attitudinal stuff, and I, I'm just dying to know this answer this question. When you got nailed, okay, and you had a couple of kids. What was it like trying to work out how am I going to tell my family what, what's going to happen to dad? Because I've got four kids. I've been divorced many times. I've, I've had to go sit down with my kids and, you know, I've had three wives. I've had to sit down with my kids and tell them, look, it hasn't worked out with me and mom. I got you beat. I got you beat there, buddy. <laughs> I'm, I'm nearly catching up to you, I think. Um, so um, you're one uh, shy. <laughs> <laughs> so, but how do you, but your, yours is a bit more heavy. Mm-hmm. I having to say, look, something's happened here. 
it's probably not telling them is the problem. It's thinking about how you're going to tell them. What was that like? It was probably the worst night of my life. I mean, that that last night. So we, we made a decision, my, my ex-wife and I, that we weren't going to tell them what happened until I had to go to jail. They were too young. And we thought that the amount of years in between telling them and then actually going would just be too distracting for them and create too much stress. And I, and I think we made the right decision for sure. Um, so it was this four year period that my children knew something was wrong, but did not know that I was going to actually go to jail. Um, they known that I, you know, I had, we had this massive, incredible lifestyle, right? And then that lifestyle was contracted. Like, I remember my first time my daughter went into an airport. She's like, is that our plane? Like, what are all these people doing here? Like, is that, and <laughs> so the 747 was our plane, right? And, and, you know, she was five years old. She'd never seen a regular jet before, right? And, uh, but of course, you know, my, my, my ex-wife was like, you know, left me the day I got and she married another rich guy right away. Like, yeah, what a shock that was. Right. But, but, but the point was, so my kids, th- and that was good. He's a nice guy, by the way. And, um, my kids didn't see any financial pain from that when I lost everything. Right. And that was a good thing. I, I mean, I they wouldn't have cared either way. They were kids. Right. But they never felt that, but the, they were aware that something had happened. Their mother and I split up, but that terrible night when I had to tell them was just, it was awful. My daughter broke down into hysterics, crying profusely. My son cried mostly because she was crying. He was much younger than she was. Um, she was nine. He was six. So it was a much bigger impact for her. Um, and also boys are stupid compared to girls at that age. Like girls just mature faster. Guys are like, what? Right? Girls run light years around boys at that age. Right. And it was just awful. I said to her, you know, daddy made some mistakes and now he's got to pay for his mistakes and he's going to be away for a while. Um, and you can come visit me now. You know, thankfully I wasn't in like a penitentiary. I was in a, a minimum security prison camp and my bunkmate was Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong. So my daughter's memories of jail was like us and Tommy Chong, who was famous back then. And, and more than me. So, so like, so it was this kind of weird, cool thing that I was, you know, Tommy and I became close friends. So it wasn't the, but, but that's sugarcoating it though. I mean, I mean, that's giving you the better side of it. The other side of it was just fucking awful. It was horrific. And they had to come visit me in jail. Jail sucks. And I switched to two different jails. I didn't see my kids for almost a year once. Cause you know, the second year I was away, it was too far. Um, and that sucked. And, but that being said, that was my why. That was what really drove me to make the comeback was the love of my children and to show my children that their dad could do it right. That 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 wasn't a crook. That dad made a mistake. And that was going to come back and be bigger and better and stronger than ever and be a force in their lives. And that's precisely what I did 10,000 times more than I ever thought and had imagined. Like, I never imagined that by writing a book would turn into the life I ended up having because of like, who would ever think that? It's just like, it's a one in a billion shot, right? Um, but it did. And, and the driving force behind all of that was the love of my children and wanting to, to 
become successful again in an honest way. And I wasn't, by the way, I was not the by far the most dishonest person, just so you know. I mean, I had a legitimate firm and everything. So I was breaking the law, but it wasn't like we're out there, like, um, you know, people were sending in money and there was no stocks being, it was a legitimate firm with legitimate deals, but I made mistakes and that's it. And then I deserved to go to jail. I went, I did my time. And when I came out, I had this idea that I'm going to be a role model to my children. And, you know, and I, and many times I will tell you, Mark, that I passed up and Nick Ford, who you know, a mutual friend will tell you that Nick and I passed up more opportunities you can imagine. If anything wasn't a hundred percent kosher and smelled right, it was any hint of impropriety. We ran the other way. We just wouldn't, you know, I was there to build a long-term brand and I wasn't going to risk it again. And, and I'm glad. And sometimes I struggled because of that didn't make as much as quick as I could have. But in the end, I ended up making a lot more. I mean, I love the fact you're in there with Tommy Chong. Uh, I love Cheech and Chong. I mean, the, the, I grew up in that in, environment, that era, um, and uh, that, that that were the coolest guys. What was Tommy Chong doing in the same prison? Why was he in jail? He was there for selling not marijuana, but bongs on the internet. Believe it or not. Apparatus? Yes. Believe, it's the craziest, stupidest thing. And he was there for a year. Uh, and I showed up about a month after he got there. And, you know, we were both very high profile. And so they put us together, you know, I guess, to watch us or to, you know, whatever. They just thought that made sense. They they put us in the same cell. We, we, shared, we weren't in the same jail. We were in the same room. Like, we had a little room together, right? And we became very good friends. And it was Tommy that convinced me to write the book. So I, I want to ask you about that. So it's very interesting to me that, and I, th- I say this to everybody all the time, that we should document our journey. I mean, you, you documented your journey because you might not have had too many choices at the time because, <laughs> you, you know, you're in the nick. Climbs on your hands, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Correct. But how, how important do you think is it is, especially these days when we've got cameras, mobile phones, you know, recording s- systems, how important do you think it is for an entrepreneur to document their journey from when they first start, when they conceive the idea and to document? You documented your whole life and you and turned it into a movie, of course, but how important is that documentary piece of the way entrepreneurs think and then for, therefore and reducing it into something that is transportable and you know nearly it nearly becomes an nft but like it's transportable it's not digital but it's 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 there in writing somewhere i i think that in today's world we we are doing that by default especially the younger generation, we automatically are sort of through Instagram or whatever we do, whatever our preferred platform is, we're cataloging our life on a daily basis. Uh, And by the way, I only wish I would have had that ability back in the day, although I don't think we could have done what we did back in the day. If everyone had a camera, we'd probably just been burnt at the stake like heretics, right? I mean, there's different (laughs) rules of the game back then, but, but I think it's, uh, uh, it's got its drawbacks and it's got its amazing points. Like for example, the problem with social media and cataloging your life is that it's not real. It's not real life being cataloged. What you're capturing is these artificial saccharine moments that look better than they were. They're strategically placed to make you seem like you're happier than you were with lots of friends. And I think it creates a lot of um, negative feelings among other people watching because they think that their life is not as good as the phony life on Instagram. And there's a lot of Photoshopping going on. You're too, you're not tall enough thin enough, good looking enough. And there's so much of that there. And I think it's really, really toxic. That's, I think, partly why TikTok 
among other reasons, took hold because people were sick of that artificial bullshit, look perfect, influencer type of person. On and then suddenly on TikTok, it's like you could have people that will look literally, you know, unattractive, making asses of themselves, and it was okay versus that pumped up saccharine thing that you see on Instagram. So that's not real life to me. Um, and it's also annoying to be part of it, people who are into that because like their whole life is about, let me wait, let me take a photograph. Let me do this. Let me photograph. It's like after enough, stop it. It's not, it's bullshit. It's not living. If you want to live, just fucking live. I think you're talking about something different. And that is like, you're almost keeping a journal, a real account yeah. of what happened in your life. That's authentic. And I think that's amazing. And, and I, I, thankfully, you know, I, as you said, I had time. I was in the nick, right? So I was able to go back before it was too late because frankly, I couldn't do that right now. Like I, I actually read, reread The Wolf of Wall Street recently because I'm working on a, a new book right now about investments, right? And I went back to refresh myself with my, my recollection, my own writing. And I was like, damn, like I, 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 I forgot so much of what had happened so many years ago. And I, and I remember that as I was writing it, it was also fresh in my mind back then because it had just recently happened. But now remember, this is now 30 years ago, this stuff happened 30 years. Right. Wow. And a lot of that stuff is far less fresh and vaguer in my mind. Um, and I'm glad that I took the time to write it down. I think writing is a lost skill. I think that um, even if you write poorly, you should keep a journal about how you were feeling, what was happening. Uh, I think it's a really good thing that you're saying. I do too and because I, I just think that document, documenting the real deal is important and uh, authenticity is something that is, on one hand, we originally thought Instagram was about authenticity but it's turned out not to be really about authenticity. It's about showing your best self, as you say. Yeah. And the more authentic we we can present, the more believable people are about us, and the more they actually will like us in real terms, and the more value that we can add to our own brand. So I, I just think that's so important for younger people to listen to what you just said about the authentic, the authentic Jordan Belfort. So I just want to sort of move it right along because, like you know, it's 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 difficult. You go to you go to jail. You know, everything's been taken away from you. You've got a reputational issue you have to deal with. You know, you've sorted out your kids and all that sort of stuff. You do your time. You know, you you, you put in. You put in. You know, you do your time. You come out. You, you should be clean. And then you got to say, okay, now what the fuck? What am I going to do? Um, how do I make a quid? How do I redeem myself? Well, maybe not redeem myself. How do I make a quid? How do I get back onto the hurdy gurdy and get get going again? How do I make myself relevant? Mm. He wrote a book and it turned into a movie. But Jordan Belfort's done something more than that. More more so than your uh, you know your your talk events, your talking events. You are pushed yourself really well into, and I read about this in the Financial Review here in Australia recently, about how you've taken yourself into the realms of NFTs, cryptocurrency, etc. And that's really where I want to talk to you about today. Sure, yeah. Because to me, it's one of my greatest interests. So, what is Jordan Belford doing in relation to DeFi, digital currencies? and non-fungible tokens and that whole territory. Sure. Why does it fascinate you? So I think the most interesting thing about my journey was just how bearish I was 
for so many years. And some people will say, oh, he's just in, look, he was once negative. How, you know, he, you can't trust him. I'm like, it's probably the stupidest fucking statement I ever heard. Like, have you ever hear changing your mind based on new information, moron? I mean, good Lord, like that, that, that whole attitude. I mean, like people change their mind all the time based on new information. And if you don't, you really... You're probably dead. You're like you're you're in the ground if you're not growing and changing your mind and learning from new things that are happening. So my journey was really interesting, and it's worth dissecting here. Number one, uh, I was mostly right about my takes on cryptocurrency in the sense that I went publicly and I made a call. I said, I thought Bitcoin was massively overvalued when it was 20,000. I said, it's going to crash and burn. I said, I love blockchain technology. I think this is going to be an amazing future for blockchain. So you can go, go back to the to my big interviews on CNBC, CNN. I was loving blockchain technology and hating Bitcoin, right? Almost to the day after I said that, Bitcoin crashed from, you know, the high of 20, about to $3,000. And I looked like a genius for a while, right? And I thought I was right. Now, the interesting thing was, is that my my dislike for Bitcoin had to do with a lot of reasons why it plummeted. Number one, it was being artificially pumped up by Tether at the time. Tether was kind of scamish back then. They were printing Tether as it was needed. That came out later on in an indictment. They paid a fine and whatever, right? There was so many freaking frauds with ICOs going on and also for someone like me that understood pump and dump so well, when everyone was yelling, Bitcoin's going to a million when it was 17,000, it was so obvious what was going on that they, in order to take the average person, the so-called sucker, and get them to buy in after it's up 10 times or 100 times, you have to come up with some unrealistic price it's going to. So when it's 40,000, you want to get the suckers in, it's got to be a million it's got to go to. So you see all these unrealistic expectations. That was around so much much so back then that it was and then, then the real voices like the Michael Saylor or the legit, I met some people later on that you wouldn't have heard of getting Robert Beatles, legit people that actually had done the work on Bitcoin. And I had, that was, then that was my mistake. So I was so emotionally charged negative towards it. I never bothered to really look deeply into the technology. And also, frankly, what trumped everything, and I still stand by this today, was sovereign risk. Like the fact that the U.S. didn't do what China did is fucking shocking. I don't. I still don't understand how, why people will say, "Oh, they can't bullshit." They could have, and they still can, but they won't. I mean, I'm along the lots. I hope they don't, right? But the point was, is that China, like, literally put the hammer down, done, no more, right? They can do that. They're an authoritarian state. They decide one day they want to raise a village, the village is gone, right? The U.S. can't do that. Australia can't do that. If they want to try to really do something Bitcoin, it's years of <laughs> trying to make a fucking one law. It's like, it's, so it's very different. But back then, it boggled my mind why on earth would the U.S. allow this to exist? I still don't understand why. How could you? There's so much scams right now with NFTs. There's so, for every legitimate NFT, there's 10,000 scams. For every legitimate coin on the, on Coinbase, there's 15 of my worthless pieces of shit, okay? So, so there's such, and this is the fault of one major body, the U.S. fucking government. The fact that they have not regulated this yet is such, is such a major, uh, to me, I think it's such a huge problem and people are getting ripped off blind because here's the deal. There's amazingly 
bright people in this space that are building the future of finance, Web3, things that you love, that I love, that I'm part of. And for every legitimate player, there's a hundred people that are out there just trying to grab people's money with floating ridiculous coins that have no utility, NFTs that are going to all go to zero. And that to me, so this is, and that's because there's no regulation. So what you've done, they've, the U.S. government, it's infinite fuck them, the SEC, is that by being doing nothing and sitting on their hands, they've allowed all these bad actors to run wild in this space right now. So while I love the DeFi space, it's a fucking landmines. It's filled with landmines. You know, everyone's getting ripped off. I've lost money because I speculate. I, love, I, have, so I don't go to the tracks so I can play these fucking DeFi protocols. And you watch how they just fall with rug pulls and all the stuff that is just literally criminal behavior on steroids is happening all over the world because the U.S. government and others like it will not step in and regulate this. Once it's regulated, you know what I think is going to happen? The prices of Bitcoin and Ethereum, the real ones, Solana, they're going to go fucking through the roof. These, that's not my big play is I believe that when regulation comes in, these things are going to hit levels that you didn't think possible because what's happening right now is the real big money is scared. The institution, the real institutional money can't go near this. There's no regulation out there. And there's so many bad things happening. But yet, with all the bad things happening, the technology itself is so powerful. And there's some amazing things happening within that that we all spend our time sifting through the shit to try to get to the gold because there's so much gold there too, right? But, you know, I have this really weird, complex view of it. So, what did I, when did I make my move to change from bearish to bullish, right? It happened in two steps. Number one, when Bitcoin crashed out to $3,000 and didn't go to zero, I was like, what the fuck? Like, well, I know the, when, that's a penny stock. It crashed, it found its value. It's not supposed to stop at a $3 billion market cap. It's supposed to go to zero and never come back. That's the way these work. When something has no value and it crashes, it doesn't come back. It's done. It stabilized and started building support and getting wider support and wider support, right? That was a big telltale sign there was something more, right? Second thing was someone came to me, a guy named Robert Beatles, and gave me a very, very different view on Bitcoin, a more sober view. All I had heard really was people screaming from the hilltops, it's going to replace the US dollar in five years, it's going to be a million dollars, unless everyone's got to go in because you're going to be broke if you don't. That was such a, such a bullshit narrative that it drove me crazy. So I started hearing a more legitimate narrative. Bitcoin is property. Bitcoin is an asset, is digital goals. And started hearing much more sober people talk about like, listen, I don't know where it's going tomorrow or next month. I don't know next year, but in five years, I, I am sure it's going to be much higher because the long-term fundamentals of this are just too good. The scarcity, the adoption and so forth. So that was, was the pivot I started making in 2019 when it was maybe 11,000, 12,000 when I started getting bullish on Bitcoin. And then I started getting in slowly and then quickly after that. Shortly thereafter, like most people, I'm sure you're probably the same way. Then you start buying some Ethereum and you start saying, hmm, let me look at the DeFi protocols. Then you go in, you throw a little money around to get screwed. And I want, but made some investments I knew would suck just to learn about the game. And then I quickly realized there's only one way to play this game. That's to be the issue of. That's where the money really is. If you're going to really be in this game, you want to make money, there's two ways to play it. Number one, buy Bitcoin, hold it for a really long time. Buy Ethereum, really hold it for a long time. Or two, get involved in these deals before they're listed. That to me is the way you make money. How do you uh, harvest those deals before they get listed? So like, if, if you got some sort of platform that you talk to these people or how, how does an, an average person do right. something? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Similar. So this is a good question. So obviously the rules for me are very different and probably for you too, right? You're famous, you're, you're a huge following people. So as soon as people found out that I was, you know, turning bullish, people started, you know, pouring the deals on me because I have a reputation for being savvy financially and that I'm a brand name. So is you know, probably similar to you, right? For the average person, it's easier than you might think. Number one is to start networking, Start getting into these telegram rooms, getting into the chat and discords and start networking and meeting people, going to these events where, you know, these events are not, when you go to Bitcoin Miami or Bitcoin Bahamas or an Ethereum porch, whatever it might be, it's not because you're going to sit there and hear someone on stage that's going to teach you something. It's because you're out there meeting people in the game. You're going out there and learning and shaking hands and finding out where these deals are. It might be very difficult for you to get into seed rounds, but it's not nearly as difficult to get into series A's and also there's all these platforms out there like Cedify. I just had something. I just did a deal. I, I own a big stake in this, in this, in this, uh, in this coin that just listed today. In fact, it's called realms of eternity, right? Now this is, a, it's, a, it's actually not a, it's not like um, a default. It's a game. It's, it's actually a web three game in the metaverse. It's a play to earn game, right? And it just started trading today, right? And here's an example was, it was on like 10 different platforms before or six different platforms to launch. We sold a little bit of, of, uh, of, of coins, tokens out there and people, all these Average everyday investors got $100, $300, $200, little taste of it, right? And then they get in early. But if you want to really get into these things, you got to get in right when they start. You got to find a company. You have to treat it like a stock where, in other words, analyze, number one, who is the team behind it? What's the management like? Is there really utility in this idea? You gotta you gotta sit there and watch when is this thing going going to start listing? Because if you buy this thing a week after it lists, it's probably too late. They're already up three or five or tenfold. You have to get you have to really do the work here unless and then once you start it becomes very easy. People will start coming to you. You start getting into the network. People are calling you. You're calling other people. You double your own little group of people. And before you know it, you're actually getting to these things very, very early. And that's how you do it. And ultimately, if you want to take it to the next level, then you could start, you know, again, this takes a bit of time, but, you know, you have a little success and then, you know, people find out about your success. You put yourself out there as an angel investor. Before you know it, boom.
So, like, uh, you, you guys in the US have got that sort of stuff going on. We, we don't really have that um, sort of platform or, or environment here in, in Australia. I mean, Dogecoin is a good example where we did have that environment, but that was a long time ago. Um, what, what would you say to – I mean, why do you think that Australians are a little bit behind the game in terms – the average Australian is a little bit behind the game in actually adopting it? Is it because we don't have access to these events that you're talking about, these Bitcoin events – that of which you hold, you sort of hold events yourself. I um, mean, is it because of that? And if so, is that something you'd be interested in doing here in Australia? Would you ever come here to Australia and start to talk about what what you're talking about now and the various platforms and invite people who are developing new platforms and new coins pre-listing? Would you ever consider doing something like that right here in Australia? hundred percent. And by the way, the saddest thing that ever happened, you know, one of them at least was this whole pandemic with Australia. I used to love Australia. And literally you guys, you guys like the, the tightest lockdowns ever, right? It was like, it was like yeah. prison Australia. Like you, you listen, I know it was a serious totally. thing, but it was just like, bam, you couldn't, you know, my ex-wife's actually in Australia today. Finally, she's good friends. I know, you know, the Simmons family in Melbourne, she's there. And, um, and the, they were good friends of mine too. And I love Nick Fordham, right? So I absolutely love it. I plan on coming to Australia. We should definitely do something together, by the way, and do some events totally. there because number one is like, listen, it, the, the, whole key to this thing is access, networking, knowing people who know what's going on. And then also, once you just get a little bit of that, a little tiny taste, it snowballs because everyone's online. You have these groups. So I don't care if you're in Australia, New Zealand, or the fucking Congo. If you really, really want to do it, you can get into an internet connection. You can get yourself into these groups. You can actually find out about this stuff. There's great podcasts. I'm actually starting a podcast, The Wolf of Crypto, in the next month or so. So there's all these ways that you can do it, right? But what you don't want to do, and here's what people do, the mistake they make. They go out there and they'll go on Coinbase. Now look at the top 10 coins, all right? Or they'll look for an article in in um, in Blockchain Magazine or Crypto Weekly or whatever it might be. This is the worst possible thing that you could do to make money is to buy these things when everyone is talking about them. You have to get so unreasonably lucky to, to make money like that. You have to get involved with them before people are talking about them. And that takes a little bit of work. It takes a little bit of know-how, but not a lot. Okay. So certainly, yeah, I mean, that'd be a great thing to come down to Australia and go throughout. I love Western Australia too. I love my great friends there as well. And I also, you know, one of the things with Australia too is that, you know, you guys have that tall poppy syndrome there in Australia, right? It's a little bit yeah. of that going on, right? And the nice thing about this stuff is it's quiet wealth too. You know, you have to flaunt your wealth. You make a lot of money in Bitcoin or other things like that. You know, it's not the sort of thing you have to flaunt around and buy a Lamborghini or stuff like that. You could live a really good life. Uh, and, and, I, and I really do think, just so you know, in terms of especially NFTs, I don't even think, we're like at the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. I think we're going to look back one day at these at NFTs and say, like say what 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 were people thinking? Like that's not an NFT. <laughs> like like it's like these are like nonsense. Like I think there's going to be use cases for NFTs that are so profound, like with real estate and so much of, of what we do can be tokenized. And I think a lot of a lot of that will come with the metaverse when people really start to you know some technology. Listen, this I remember when I used to go to Australia and I, and I it was 2014. And I wanted to download a movie on uh, iTunes. Seven hours, 12 minutes. I'm like, what the hell? It was like seven hours to get the movie downloaded, 
right? You guys didn't have high-speed internet, right? Back then, it was like three bips, right? <laughs> what the hell, right? And then suddenly, the whole country got wired a few years later, and next thing you know, right? So so there's technological issues, especially like for this next level up with, with the metaverse, but there is so much money flowing into this space right now. There's so much money. The biggest brands are going in there. The biggest companies are going in there. The smartest minds are heading there. There's uh, an old saying on Wall Street, institutional money is usually smart money, even when it's not. It's enough to fuel the market anyway. I think they'll, they'll make this work because there's just so many resources pouring into it. So you, you just talked something about something very interesting there about um, don't invest in momentum, but invest in the early, the early stage before the momentum hits. And for most people, they don't know how to get to the early stage. And you just said, like, you've got to get yourself. If, you, if you're not going to have Jordan Belford here in Australia and people like Jordan Belford here in Australia talking at seminars and having the ability to network, et cetera, then get on to all the various other online forums and talk, and listen to what they've got to say. You can join up to these events, by the way, online. Most exactly. Of, they, they can be American events. You can still join in. You can, exactly. You're going to participate in these sorts of things. And you're saying also that the top 10, for example, our bank, biggest bank here in Australia just um, put out a, uh, a platform where they recommend to you um, 10, well, they haven't actually got to 10, but they said they're going to come up with 10 types of coin that they think are worthwhile buying because they're safe, so to speak. You're not going to get hurt. And then they also um, talk about wallets you can use and various other th- things that you can use in relation to buying one of the digital currencies. But I think you, I agree with you. I think they're the actual worst currencies to buy because uh, that's what everybody else is buying. And uh, you should be in there way, way before any of that happens. And so, therefore, you've got to be in the know. And have, do you, or when you do your seminars, you're talking about doing like due diligence on these new things that are going to come up. Do you have like a checklist? that you use sure. that people sure. would look at, for example, check sure. their management, yeah. check their previous sure. history, blah, blah, blah. Do you have, which yes. one people do, should do on new stocks that are being listed too, by the way. Yeah. But do you do that? Yes. Um, and it's pretty short checklist and it's a really powerful one. One thing I want to say though, is that, that um, you know, there's, there's different strategies for cryptocurrencies. There, there are two buckets that I, I look at. One is very safe Make a lot of money, buy Bitcoin or buy Ethereum and fucking hold it. Don't sell it. Two years, three years, four years, just put it away. And I would look at its equivalent in the stock market as being the S&P 500. The best investment in the stock market is simply to buy the S&P 500 and hold it. And it beats out 99% of the hedge funds every single year. In fact, what did Warren Buffett say yesterday? He said, I hate to use this analogy, but I'd rather have a fucking monkey throwing a dart than give my money to a money manager. Monkey will do better than the money manager. And he's proven that by winning a million dollar bet. So the equivalent of that in the cryptocurrency world will be buying Bitcoin or Ethereum and holding it. And I think that's a really, really safe bet to make. There's risk in everything, but that's as close as you can get to that sort of really asymmetrical, huge upside risk, a uh, potential little downside risk, right? Bitcoin. Can I just stop you there, Jordan, for one sure. second? Can I just stop there for one second? Because I just want to put it in our talk here, and maybe it's the same in America. What Jordan, you're saying here is by buying Bitcoin or Ethereum and holding it, it's because they make up such a big percentage of the whole crypto world it's a bit like buying the index, the S&P index or in Australia, the ASX index or one of our ordinaries index here in Australia. You buy the index 
and you allow the momentum to take the index up to where it needs to get to in due course, which means you make money just by virtue of the amount of volume that goes in there. So buying those big, two big names that you just mentioned, which somewhat. by the way I buy mm. and hold, it's like buying the index. It's safe, somewhat, but, it's, but it's not a bad way to get involved. Well, yep. somewhat, not not exactly. I'll, I'll only qualify that because what you're saying is true, by the way, uh, especially when it comes to, to, the, to the stock market. It's a little bit different with the cryptocurrency market, and I'll explain why. There's, there's an underlying thing happening here, which is called the adoption curve. So the stock market is basically at full adoption right now, more or less. You know, people invest, it goes up over time, but for more or less, the world is in the stock market. It's heavy regulated, it's a node entity. What you have in the crypto world is a very small amount of people relative to the potential amount of people who can buy it, and also this institutional money on the sideline. So Bitcoin is actually a store of value. And it's scarce. There's a limit to how many can be made. It's 21 million, and you'll get to 20 million by 2140, uh, 2040, and the last million will take 100 years, right? But it's scarce. So as the adoption continues, money is going to be flowing into Bitcoin. And if it continues on the same level as it is right now, adoption, it mathematically almost has to go significantly higher over the long term. It almost has to, but nothing's a guarantee. In addition, there's something in Bitcoin called halving, where every few years they have the rewards to the miners. In the past, that has been inflationary for the price. There's one coming up in a few couple of years, right? So there's technical and fundamental factors, I believe, that will cause Bitcoin to go much, much higher. So it's more, unlike the index, it's not the, it's like a dog wagging the tail here, right? So Bitcoin is like a de facto index for the bellwether for the crypto. But I think that's going to decouple over time as the market gets more mature. And I don't think it's going to always be that way. I just think that surely by holding Bitcoin and for that matter, Ethereum, because it serves as literally the almost a skeleton for the whole, it's like buying the railroad tracks, right? For the whole nine, nine yards, right? All of DeFi and everything else, right? And it's supposed to be this big uh, move to proof of uh, stake, which I don't want to get into the weeds here, right? But I, I just think those two into themselves fundamentally are great long-term holds. I think that they're where institutions are going to go first. And as I said before, institutional money is usually smart money when it's not it fuels the market anyway. So that's why I buy those two, okay? And, so, and I look at those as my store of value in the crypto world. Then you have this other bucket, which is all of these up-and-coming DeFi protocols, potentially NFT drops, right? But I'm very nervous about NFT drops. It'd be very, very careful. So what is my checklist? Well, number one, the number one, the single most important checklist, item number one is the management. Who are the people behind the deal? What type of success do they have behind them in the past? Are they known for building or for dumping? Are they builders or are they dumpers, right? Uh, they, you know, Do they have trackers for building real businesses? I think we forget that at the end of the day, it's the same thing that happened in 99 with the, with the dot-com. They have to build a fucking company at some point. It can't just be smoke and mirrors, right? That's going to end, you know? Uh, so especially when regulation comes in, because one of the things that's artificially pumping up this whole entire market right now is the fact that you can raise money for it without a prospectus. So as soon as the regulations come in and they come up with their own version of the 
perspectives, suddenly everything is going to change. And a lot of the VC money will not be able to go into these shit deals with impunity. Right now, you can go into almost any little deal. And if you're, unless it's the worst deal in the world, you're going to get out at some point because they all list on a DeFi exchange versus all these huge things that have to happen in traditional stocks where if you do 10 deals in, in VC and stocks, you know, Six might ne- never get out. You're like, they're going to, you have no exit ramp. There's always an exit ramp with tokens. So that's why it's asymmetrical risk for venture capital. That's why a lot of the hot money flows in. So number one, I'm always looking for the management. That's number one. Number two is the management. Number three is the management. All right. Now, after those first three things, let's move on to the next thing. Is there utility? Is there a real reason why this needs to exist? plus of the deals have no reason for existing. They don't accomplish anything. They're not more elegant than the existing technology. So one of the biggest mistakes people make, we just don't know, is that you think that this blockchain decentralization is a good thing. In fact, it's almost always a bad thing. Decentralization is very cumbersome. It's not easy to do. There's so many negatives to decentralization that you have to have a trumping factor. What is, is there something there that is so important? Because decentralization has one major advantage to everything. Trustless. It's a trustless system. You know, human beings fucking it up. And that's what happens with currencies. Human, currencies get debased by human beings and presidents and kings and, and princes that want to fight wars and do whatever or line their own pockets. They debase the currency. So this trustless ability is so crucial in currencies that trumps everything else that might be inefficient about decentralization. So just because something is decentralized, that does not mean it's going to be better. In fact, it'll probably be worse. So you have to really look, what's the need? Does this really need to be decentralized? Are they solving a problem? If so, what problem are they solving? That's the next thing I look at. And the thing after that is the tokenomics is very, very important. This is a huge issue. Tokenomics, meaning the tokens that are out there, how long are the insiders locked up? How many were issued? What's the, you know, capitalization? I'm not such a big stickler for capitalizations because everything's overvalued by so much. It doesn't really matter. I mean, everything's overvalued. So like, so like you can't really say, oh, it's overvalued by 15% off. Stop it. They're all overvalued, right? But most, the biggest thing is, is there are obscene amounts of tokens out there. So like it has to become, you know, Facebook to ever become successful. And also key here is what, are the lockup periods, you know, wh- what was the seed round? What was the price of the seed round? How many tokens were issued? What's the lockup periods? What's the cliff? How long do they leak out their things? What was the series A at? These are really, really crucial things to tokenomics. So I think those the other things as well, but those three things are just so, so important. Like, you know, and then to digging deeper into the thing about the individuals running it, are they even doxxed? Do you know who they are? There's so many deals that you don't even know what the fuck is running them. That they're, they're hiding behind Zeus. I mean, good lord, I, I did one of these with Zeus, and Zeus fucked me for one hundred thirty thousand dollars, right? So like, whatever. Now, to me, that's a gamble. I, you know, I gamble with hundred grand's my gambling amount, right? I threw hundred grand some DeFi protocol as a joke. I, I and I and whatever, and Zeus fucked me, all right? I don't know who the fuck Zeus is, right? And, and I, you know, whatever. I, I went with my eyes open. That's fine, right? But you know, that's a huge issue. Who is running it? Are they even out in the open? Um, and then there's you know something getting dig- digging deep into other things as well. I mean, I think your podcast, which you're going to launch, <laughs> is pretty fucking important. I, I think what we need is a start at least of curation, like people curating, like you just said, the sort of things you should be looking at. You just went through a few things, management, 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 um, because most individuals don't have access to or have the ability to 
to do that curation and or at least ask the right questions or or indeed even be in an environment or have those people who they can ask the questions of. I want to just move that stuff aside a little bit. Right now globally, and I know you'll have a view on this, um, we have this inflation issue and we, we all know there's a whole lot of reasons why it could be getting caused, et cetera. In Australia at the moment, Inflation has become a becoming a big issue, not like in the US or in Europe or in Canada, but it's becoming a big issue. And of course, interest rates are going to start going up here probably, you know, this week uh, as our Federal Reserve meets. Um, but it's already been happening in the US. What is the real chat that you're hearing about inflation and interest rates relative to the United States? What, what's the real chat? Is this out of control or what? What's going on? It's out of control um, and people are worried about it and they should worry about it. I, I met it, Most of you are way too young to, to remember the days that I do of Jimmy Carter when we had what was called stagflation. We had 22% interest rates. It cost you 25% on a mortgage. That is real numbers. It was 25% interest rates. Um, you had stock market that was literally in the fucking toilet, like, like no volume, and you had negative growth at the same time. High interest rates, negative growth, right? It's called stag, stagflation. Stagnant growth, hyperinflation, right? Well, what causes that? This is no mystery, okay? You can't print the amount of money that was printed over the last X number of years Start, really, you know, it all started, the problem goes back further. It started in 1999 with the, when the bubble burst in the dot-com era and everything crashed. Then literally a year after, while things were hanging by a thread, the terrorists drove planes into the Twin Towers. And it was at that point with the U.S. economy hanging in the balance, George Bush said, if you don't spend money on your credit cards, the terrorists win. And they flooded credit into the system and they started this bubble, this interest rates dropped and the bubble began forming in the housing market and it went up and the bubble fell up and up. This hyperinflation of housing prices, insanity. And then when it crashed and it did crash in 2008, the government had a moment. What do we do? Do we let the system, you know, implode and, you know, weed out the weak people? Is it or we get a save the system, you know, save the weaker players. And they stepped in and they did bailouts. And I'm not saying that they didn't have to because it's more complex than that. But what they, again, didn't let it fail. And they kicked the can down the road once more, printed ridiculous amounts of money, like hyper amount, crazy amounts of money. And they caused the system to reboot up again and they kept going again. And each time they did that, what happened to our budget deficit? It went higher and higher and higher and higher. So you started getting into this irrational cycle of long-term low interest rates. You know, compared to historical levels, interest rates became, it was ridiculous, ridiculous, right? It was 0%. And it wasn't like that my whole life. And suddenly the government refused to let the system, the economy correct and weed out the weaker players, right? So they kept printing money and printing money and printing money. And then, you know, what happened? So when this terrible spot, Trump comes in, he comes in and does some really, really smart things economically that promote growth. He cuts regulation. He opens up. He makes us energy independent, which is very important. So he did some brilliant things. You could hate the guy, but economically, the country was doing phenomenally well. We were energy independent. We were not in any wars at all, right? And, you know, people hated his guts, but, you know, you don't like 
like his tweets, whatever. Things were going great. Employment was very low. And then guess what happens? The pandemic starts, right? Now the pandemic comes in and they decide, hey, you know what? Um, let's just give people money. I got fucking $700,000. $900,000 in loans, loans, gifts from the government. And I'm like, thank you, Mr. I'm glad I took it. Why not? Everyone took them, right? And I qualified for them and I used them wisely. I used them for what they were. I paid my rent. I paid my employees. But 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 that was the tip. They started sending every person checks for $1,500. It was the nuttiest thing. They extended the unemployment. It, they created a paradigm here for, for years where it was better not to work than to work. That's fucking Argentina where my wife is from. And look at that country. It's a disaster. They actually, it got to the point where you could, where it was better for you to not work because your increased unemployment was more than you'd make. And they create this ridiculous, ridiculous paradigm, which is now, hey, let's forgive all the student loans. What the fuck? Wait a second. I paid for my kids' college. I mean, I shouldn't have paid. I should have, I should have let them borrow so they wouldn't have to pay anyway. So there's all this crazy stuff, and it's really all about the sort of leaning towards socialism in my country. And the U.S. is getting more and more towards the left with socialist policies, and they, they're a disaster. They don't work. It's, it's the ultimate situation if it doesn't scale well. It all sounds nice and hunky-dory in theory. It's the worst system in the world. It, you know, it, it promotes laziness. It promotes stupidity. And that's what's happening. Yes, people get lazy. They don't want to work. There's a huge problem with when you can't hire people anymore. And then they start having to raise rates. Um, um, and then they're start raising, up, by the way, um, people's salaries to get them to even come to work again, right? And then at the same time, real estate, because they're printing all this money, massive sums of money, making any, back to 2006 again, anyone can get a loan right now. So what happens to real estate prices? They go flying up. Real estate's going up and up, creating all this massive wealth on paper in the housing market. Once again, round two, same fucking thing, right? Except now we're saddled with how much? $30 trillion in debt. People don't want to work anymore. So what does that mean? Well, I don't know. Like, you know, listen, you know, how long can the U.S. dollar stay as the reserve currency? I think what they did with Russia was ridiculous. So let's seize Russia's assets. So now we make them go to China so they can use the yuan. And, you know, and even Saudi Arabia starting to not pay any more in, in everything in dollars, the petrodollar. They started to do stuff with wands for, the, for oil. So all of these things are happening that are all weakening the U.S. dollar. Biden's a fucking moron. He just is. The guy is literally out to lunch. Everyone knows that. It's an embarrassment. He's not running the country anyway, but everyone, you know, and it's just, it's a disaster. It really is. So what do I think is going to happen? I think that um, you're going to see inf inflation go higher and higher. I wouldn't be surprised if we went over 10% inflation. I remember it was 22%, right? And I think that the Democrats are going to get knocked the shit out of power in the next, in the midterms. They're going to get destroyed, destroyed. And I hope they do. And I hope we can go back to some sense of normalcy here. You know, I think that we're going to have some pain. There's got to be some pain. And I think that's one of the theses for Bitcoin because Bitcoin cannot be debased. And then that what make, makes Bitcoin a great investment, I think, is that, you know, while they're printing dollar after dollar after dollar, they, don't, they can't print more Bitcoin, not any more than the algorithm says. And that was sort of my point because some of the digital currencies, like Bitcoin, for example, are a bit of a hedge against all this inflationary sort of activity that the government and behavior that the government's been entertaining by throwing more money at things. And by the way, what you just said about the US on a lower scale, we've had exactly the same thing happen here in Australia. It was better to stay home during the pandemic. You got double the amount of um, unemployment money that you would ordinarily get. 
and we can't now we can't get employees, and as a result of not being able to get employees, employees have to pay double to their staff, which means margins are getting reduced in their businesses, and we've got so a squeeze prices. going on. So they raise prices, and here you go. So inflation. they put the prices up, correct? Right. And the whole and, and people got so much money, chain. they spend it. What the fuck, you know? So it's a joke, I, 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 right? It's a joke. You sit back, and you think, what the fuck? Like seriously, like dudes, what are you doing? Um, I, I, I want to. I, I've kept a lot of you, taking a lot of your time up here, Jordan, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing you straight. But I want to ask you one more question because people yeah. always ask me this: Why do you keep getting married? And like people ask me the same question. Like you and I've been around a few times. Just, I think it's a good thing for us to explain what sure. happens and you know why you finish something off and you start again. Like, what is that? Is that sort of uh, madness, yeah. or is that you're just a you're just a lover, or what is the deal? So, so my last marriage, and I wasn't actually we have a common law marriage. My last wife, um, I loved her really deeply, and she's a wonderful woman. Um, and it was these of all the, the marriages I've had before. It was by far the saddest ending for me because I was on the top of my game. I was wealthy. Everything was great. And we just couldn't make it work for whatever reason. Two people that truly loved each other. Really. We loved each other. Um, Great person. You know, whatever it was, our own, you know, like our own insecurities didn't match up. And... We tried for you together for 12 years. We really tried. You know, she was even in the early days, I had no money. I met her and she was really just, a, you know, so I have nothing but hold her in the highest regard. We tried to make it work and couldn't, right? And ultimately we split up and it was very painful. And then, listen, you know, I, you know, I, I, I walked into a, a place and I saw this gorgeous girl who's sweet as sugar and is, you know, just a great personality. And I fall in love easily. Right. And, you know, and, and then I guess she fell in love with me too. And like, I, and you know, I believe at least for me, I'd rather be with someone than not be with someone. I enjoy the company of someone I love. I like staying home at night with someone and just being in bed and eating in bed with a with a, with, a, with a towel over us or going out to a beautiful restaurant and letting her get dressed up and whatever. So like I, I, to me, I just, and I, and I understand some people would rather be single and alone. That's fine too. It's a personal belief. My, I'm happier as an individual when I'm with someone. Um, and I was very fortunate to meet this new girl. My wife her name is Christina and she's beautiful and she's, and she's smart and she's sexy. And that's it. So why not marry her? You know, it's a little expensive after a while when you keep losing, going through divorces and stuff. But you know, I'm not one of these people that's like, I'm not sick. I'm not really, I'm not cynical about it. Like I fall in love and I, and I love deeply and I, and, and, um, and then it doesn't work out. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, I, I'm the same. And, uh, and to be honest with you, it's okay. It's if things change and it doesn't work out, it's fucking okay. And, uh, and just get over it and get on with whatever's coming next, coming down the, down the pipe, the next. And look, too many people get hung up on the whole situation. And, uh, for me, shit happens. And people change and or people might don't change but the harder – sometimes we just try really, really hard to make it work and it's not going to fucking work. It doesn't mean you don't love them. doesn't mean they're not a good person. doesn't mean you're not a good person. You shouldn't feel guilty about it. It's traumatic, et cetera, at the time. But shit happens, and uh, and I, I just I'm really happy to be able to talk to a legend like you, who's, who's been through the same deal. I know. And it's funny, you know, it's nearly it's nearly an entrepreneurial trait. I don't want to just sort of I don't want to put us in a packet up there and sort of say that's what we're like. But there is a lot of people I know 
who are in business, who do really well in business, who have done really well in business as well, who've been through the same process. And it's not uncommon. So I would say that to anyone listening that it's it's okay. Don't let shit like that get you down. Yeah. And it's also okay not to give a fuck a bit as I open this whole conversation up. And it's also okay if something goes wrong and you have to pay a penalty. And it's also okay to start again like Jordan Belfort has done. Yeah. And I think it's also okay to have the sense that you want to remain relevant. That doesn't mean you need to see your name up in lights. It's different. It's about making sure that you've got some contribution to, to, to put towards society. And I actually think, Jordan, that's what you're doing. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, people I, say, oh, Jordan, yeah. he's doing that. I well, think you're doing that. You know, the reality is when I leave, whenever I leave outside the walls of my home, I can't walk more than, you know, 50 feet down the street without someone saying, you changed my life. Uh, you, I literally have so many fans around the world that have said they've read my stuff, they've seen my story, and they, it's inspirational from the strategies I teach with work, with sales and business. So the, to me, there's no better feeling I get than that. Like that, that, like to me, to help other people become successful, that's the gift I give myself, by the way. So, you know, I don't care what one journalist would say about me who couldn't give a flying one-tenth of a fuck because I know exactly what I do every day for people all over the world. So, and that's a good feeling. Boom, and I want to ask you, I'm the same, and I want to ask you one more question um, because I, I'll, I'll answer it first. From my point of view, paying paying it forward like I do, I have this business called Mentor, paying it forward is a selfish act from my point of view. Exactly. In that I do it because I want to do it and I get something out of it. It's But it's a good form of selfishness. Exactly. Mate, I look forward to seeing you here in Australia, yeah, right here in Sydney. Absolutely. And let's just go do something. Let's go do something together and let's really like pay as much forward as we possibly can in, is in one big session and fill the fucking room, man. Love it. Let's do it, buddy. See you, Jordan. Take care, bye. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? UVX 10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's EUFY.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.